0: Now, let's do that Irving Berlin
1: song, okay? I love piano. I love to hear this fella play. I love the fine way he plays a
2: Steinway. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Tony Bennett. And by the way, you're listening to the late and great Ralph Sharon on keyboards. And listening to Bennett and Sharon do their thing over the last, well, many decades, they played together, if you've ever seen them together, it's seeing just, well, musical perfection. And our next story is about a brand name we all know, speaking of pianos, Steinway. But a man you don't know, Henry Steinway. Because on this day in history, in 1871, Henry Steinway passed. And all of our histories, by the way, are brought to us by Hillsdale College, the best place and the finest place to study all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. In the end, the story we're about to hear is a story about resiliency and a man's search for freedom. Here's Greg Hengler. (laughs)
0: As guests dine on succulent roasted fowl and mouth-watering marinated oysters, washing their palates with ice-cold champagne, piano music is in the air. The occasion is the opening of the new Steinway factory in New York on April 1st, 1860. A correspondent from a local newspaper declares, it is conceded that the Steinway piano in make tone, sweetness, precision, and durability is the most perfect instrument of that class to be had anywhere in the world. The road to victory began 63 years earlier in Wolfshagen, a small forest hamlet nestled in the slopes of the Upper Harz Mountains in northwest Germany, where Heinrich Steinweg, founder of Steinway and Sons, is born. Church records reveal that the Steinvigs were master charcoal burners. They lived in the woods and, like most charcoal burners, were regarded with deep suspicion by townspeople who rarely saw them. Steinvig's childhood is marked by many tragedies and twists of fate. At the age of eight, during a harsh winter, his mother and most of his siblings die from exposure. He is orphaned until his father and brothers once thought to have been killed in action, return from the Napoleonic Wars and claim him. Then, at 15, he is orphaned once again, penniless and living on the streets. He seeks refuge in the German army. Two years later, he is fighting against Napoleon at the Battle of Waterloo on June 18, 1815. Family legend has it that when an advance is made on Napoleon the charge is signaled by a lone bugler, Heinrich Steinweg. According to this tale, he is awarded a bronze medal for bugling in the face of the enemy. When not heading off to battle, he is in the barracks making mandolins and other instruments and occasionally striking up a tune with the military band. After six years of military service, Steinweg begins an apprenticeship with his church's organ builder. He is also introduced to the piano through his Jewish friend Karl Brand. Steinweg learns to build a piano by copying Brands. As he changes the pipes of church organs, he becomes interested in notes, octaves, and chords. Thirsting for knowledge, he appears every Friday evening at his church to listen to the organist rehearse for Sunday services. Every German craftsman in 1835 has to belong to a guild, or what we would call a union. Since Steinweg doesn't have a master craftsman diploma as an instrument maker, he's not allowed to build pianos officially, so he becomes a cabinet maker. But he's still very much interested in building instruments. Here's master piano builder, Chris Manaus.
3: He has
4: restored, uh, I think, many instruments. He has seen them, he has compared them, and he has made his own uh, concept, his own piano, at that time for him, who was better than the instruments he has seen around him.
0: Apart from being skilled in working with wood and special tools, building a keyboard instrument requires musicality and a complex knowledge of mathematics and physics. But Steinwig relies on intelligence, and intuition. The cabinet maker decides to start building forte pianos and courts a woman he falls madly in love with, Juliana Tima, the daughter of a well established glovemaker. For the wedding, Steinwig wants to impress Juliana with a very unusual gift.
5: It sounds wonderful! In
0: 1835, he gives his bride his first square piano that he designs himself. Here's Heinrich Steinvig's great-great-grandson, Miles
4: Chapin. That is consistent a little bit with this image of a businessman. I mean, if, if your first product is very complex and technically complicated, you don't want to sell it because it might break, in which case your reputation is ruined before it's even been made. So for him to take his first piano and give it to his wife, <laughs> I think that's wonderful. Here, you, you play this, honey, and tell me if it works. Newly wed and raring to
0: go, Heinrich Steinweg wants to build not only good pianos, but the best pianos in the world. With meticulousness and passion, he begins building his first grand piano in 1836, which he later sells to the Duke of Brunswick for 3,000 marks. This piano is later named the Kitchen Piano, and is now on display at the New York Metropolitan Museum of Art along with the square piano he gave to his wife.
4: I believe he started out as a cabinet maker, but if you think about it from a businessman's point of view, with the amount of labor and the amount of time it takes to make one thing that's this big, okay? If this thing is a chest of drawers, you can sell it for X. But if this thing that you're making is a piano and takes longer to make, you can sell it for five times X, six, 10 times X so that his product could be more valuable to him and his profit margins would be greater. I don't think he was driven musically at all. I don't think he was driven creatively at all. I think he was purely, my take is, purely a businessman. And he had a product that was a higher value product and he would get a higher profit from it. Easier to transport, easier to build at home. He could have one at a time going. uh, And that was why he went into it.
2: And when we come back, more on the remarkable life of Henry Steinway who died on this day in history in 1871. And we continue here on Our American Stories with the life story of Henry Steinway. And let's return to Greg Hengler and to where we last left off. Heinrich Steinweg's first grand piano
0: is an enormous success. To meet the growing demand, Steinweg decides to train his young boys. Even his five-year-old has to help out in the workshop. His musically talented daughter, Doretta, is only allowed to watch. The crafts are strictly for men. With the help of his sons, Steinwig can make 10 to 12 instruments a year. Then in 1848, riots engulf most of Europe because of political instability and economic uncertainty, spawning movements towards socialism. Heinrich's second son Charles is on the front lines in the fight for the people's sovereignty against an absolutist prince and the civil liberties for the Christian middle class. The socialist revolution fails to produce a redistribution of wealth, land, or power, but it does paralyze businesses throughout Europe, thereby encouraging businessmen like Heinrich Steinwig to consider leaving. Fearing reprisals for their son, Charles leaves Germany and sails to New York City in 1849, where he is to find a safe haven for both himself and for the Steinwig piano business. In June 1849, Charles lands in New York, the heart of professional music-making in America and of America's piano industry. The other major piano manufacturing cities are Boston, Baltimore, and Philadelphia, all centers for German immigrants. Pianos have only been in America since the Revolution. Most of them brought in from shipwrecks by pirates as part of their booty. The rest were imported by John Jacob Astor, the German millionaire fur trader who occasionally bartered furs for pianos. Six weeks after his arrival, Charles writes to his family for the first time praising the, quote, progressive spirit of America, unquote. Beloved parents, brothers, and sisters, New York seems to be an El Dorado for keyboard instruments. I soon found employment with a piano manufacturer. It's a pretty well-paying job, The growth of wealth in the United States promises great opportunities for piano manufacturers. You'll hardly believe it, but in nearly every household there's a piano. Family music is part of daily life here. Be courageous and do not hesitate for too long. Frustrated by an assortment of government regulation, interference, and unjust taxes, tens of thousands of Germans leave their homeland and flee to America. Here again is Heinrich Steinweg's great-great-grandson, Miles Chapin.
4: It was a time of great political upheaval in Germany, uh, in Europe, all through Europe. Um, It was not a climate conducive to business, and the Steinways, if anything, were businessmen, and Heinrich, if anything, was a businessman. And he lived in this small town in the Harz Mountain region, Zazen, and he made his pianos one by one at home, But to sell them, he had to take them places, and to take them places, he had to cross borders. And when he crossed borders, there were tariffs, there were added costs that weren't going into his pocket. And he was ambitious. I think he just decided rationally to leave Germany to set up a shop in New York City.
0: On May 28, 1850, the Steinvigs, along with their three daughters and three sons, board the first German ocean liner in Hamburg. On her maiden voyage, the Steinvigs reach New York City in just 30 days. Their eldest son, Theodore, stays in Germany to run the rest of the company. When the Steinvigs arrive, they face no restrictions, no questions, no Ellis Island, and no Statue of Liberty. They quickly move into a small rented apartment on Hester Street in the middle of a quarter that's known as Little Germany, the Steinwegs' apartment is certainly very different from their spacious home back in Germany. With more than 600,000 German immigrants, New York is a German enclave. By 1860, one out of every four New Yorkers is German born. Only Berlin and Vienna have more German citizens. These Germans brought with them a classical music culture that didn't exist in America. Here's Kathleen Haltzer, from the New York Historical Society, speaking to us on St. Mark's Place, just between 2nd and 3rd Avenues.
1: On this street, you could see how busy and productive Germans were when they got to America. There would be pretzel sellers along the street, people selling cabbage, women selling clothes. And the Germans were really good at founding their own groups. They liked to get together and do things together. So they had Turnverein, a club for men. They had their beer gardens where the whole family would go. And they had things like a gun club, which you can see right on this street. It's still here. The gun club, the Schützengesellschaft, is something that was not just about shooting targets, it was also about men enjoying each other's company and drinking beer.
0: The Steinvigs don't go into business right away. Instead, they decide to work for others until they get their feet on the ground and learn some English and New York methods. Heinrich and his sons select the best New York piano makers to work for so they can learn the latest and finest techniques. But three years after their arrival, an economic depression hits New York. Heinrich's sons are unemployed, and he's earning a very low day's pay as an employed piano maker. In these times of instability, Heinrich quits his job and opens his own piano workshop with his sons. They no longer have very much to lose. But with this move, they now have the potential to achieve a lot. To help with sales, business friends advise the Steinvigs to Americanize their name. And so, Heinrich Steinvig becomes Henry Steinway. A humble attic on Verrick Street just below Canal Street on the west side of Manhattan becomes their very first company headquarters. On March 5, 1853, with only a verbal contract and a capital investment of just $6,000, Steinway & Sons, is founded. It is a good time to be in the piano business. Musical life in America is flourishing, and the piano is at the center of the increasing interest in music. Most piano pupils are women, other instruments being seen as detracting from feminine attractiveness. The cello demands that a woman spread her legs, and the harp ruins her posture. But at the piano she can sit demurely with her feet together. Even courtship increasingly takes place at the keyboard.
4: From the beginning, the women were there to support the men, assist the men, cook the food for, clean up after the men, but it was a man's business. Uh, Doretta, one of the daughters of the original Steinways, she gave piano lessons, but I don't think she ever worked for the company. I don't think she was ever a salaried... uh, employee of Steinway & Sons. She probably owned a few shares in the company herself, but she didn't work there. Now my mother was the Steinway in the family, and she had four older brothers who she watched, one by one, go off and work at the family business. So naturally, when she came of age, she asked her father, when do I start in the family business? And the story goes that he brought her to the piano and said, come here, open the piano. Read me what it says on the piano. Steinway and Sons. Please, don't embarrass me. There's no women at Steinway and Sons. Even my secretary is a man. Close the lid of the piano, forget it.
0: Here's Andy Horbachevsky, Vice President of Steinway and Sons New York.
5: What was amazing to me is that in the 10 years from um, 1853 to 1860, when they started the factory, the very big factory um, on, on Park Avenue here, they went from scratch to building the most pian- grand pianos of any other piano manufacturers. And I think that's a credit to not only the excellent design and craftsmanship, but they were tremendous, I think, businessmen and marketers and salesmen.
2: And what a story this is, the Stein becoming the Stein It's a classic immigrant story. There were no restrictions here in America. There were no questions. And so they parked it down on Hester Street and then in the end, Varick Street. And these are streets you know if you know that particular part of New York City. And when we come back, we're going to continue with the story of Henry Steinway and this remarkable family business. He died on this day in history in 1871. And again, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, I urge you all to go to hillsdale.edu to check out all of their free and online content. The teaching there is remarkable. Their Constitution 101 class, let's just say I learned more watching that class than I did at three years at the University of Virginia Law School about our own Constitution. Henry Steinway, The Family Story, continues here on Our American Story.
3: Go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for the podcast.
2: And we continue here with Our American Stories and with the story of Henry Steinway. Let's return to Greg Hengler and pick up where we left off.
0: Each Steinway & Sons grand piano is handcrafted and comprises 12,000 individual parts assembled by as many as 450 people. The process takes over a year to complete. Although it's always the same construction plans and materials, no two pianos ever sound alike. Steinway grand pianos all have their own individual sound and personality. Here's Lang Lang, who is considered by many to be one of the finest concert pianists of all time. Lane compares the best pianos to great actors for their ability to convey extremes of emotion and attitude. It was the flamboyant pianism in a Tom and Jerry cartoon, he says, that originally drew him to the instrument. I
5: had a great privilege to go to... Um both uh, Steinway factories in New York uh, and in Hamburg. And uh, um, it's a big monster, right? I mean, it's huge, but when they start working, almost like you found that they're, they're working on a Swiss watch. It's so detailed, everything's so precise, like they're making a Maulin or making some smaller item, not like, you know, you wouldn't imagine when you go to the factory. That's the factory of a producing a piano, um, such a big monster, you know, and, and that precise work really transferred uh, to, um, to the sound.
0: There is a unique person in Steinway's factory, the one who makes the final tuning for all pianos before delivery. With an expert touch, he can quickly discern the questionable keys and makes chalk marks. Then, he patiently adjusts the hammers to achieve the perfect string strokes because of his acute gift, he is known as Steinway's ear. Walter Boot is the heart and soul of Steinway & Sons and has been working in the piano factory in New York for over 50 years. Not a single Steinway piano leaves the building until it satisfies his absolute hearing. Here's Walter Boot, Andy Horbachevsky, and Miles Chapin. My job is to even out the tone. I get the piano, the piano is all done, ready to go to somebody's house. And I, like, fine tune it. I listen to it, I play it, I make it all the sound, even, so I'm happy with it. When I'm happy with it, I know you're gonna be happy with it. I love working with Chiang Wayne. Chiang gave my whole life, I'm the
6: oldest working person in the factory right now. They call me Uncle Wally because I worked here so long. When the piano come here, it looked like a piano. When it leaves, it sounds like a piano.
0: Do I put the, the love into the piano? Mozart, Rachmaninoff.
5: We go through multiple tunings, multiple regulations, multiple voicings, so it is a, a, really a circle of refinement. We're constantly trying to get that last ounce of, of tone out of it. We will baby that hammer. We will pull out as much as we can.
4: In the early days, Henry Jr. was the mastermind. Um, C.F. Theodore Steinway was back in Germany and he was still making pianos and he was working on his pianos and there's a correspondence back and forth between uh, Brunswick and New York and they were trying out different ideas but Henry Jr. was really the one here who was was, uh, getting the patents and really making the advances from an engineering perspective. If there was any single patent that made the most difference it would be the overstrung one-piece cast iron frame. That's what differentiated the Steinway piano in its day. It was the first piano company to bring a grand piano with a one-piece cast iron frame to market successfully. They first showed it in 1867 in Paris. And pretty much you can measure the history of the piano from the time running up to that point and the time running away from that point. Because today you can't buy a piano that doesn't have a one piece cast iron overstrung frame. But before that time, there were none. And they were the first, and they had a
0: patent on it. Together with his sons, Henry Steinway's credo is the same as ever to build the best pianos in the world.
4: You see pictures of him and there's only a couple of them and he was ramrod straight and his fists jammed into his pocket and set of his jaw just like this, he was very determined, determined to make a successful company, to make a success of his life in the United States, to give his children a better life than he had. I think it's that classic American story.
0: The Steinway's future depends first on skill, then on national recognition to boost sales. The company founder has an ingenious idea he realizes that the renowned pianists and composers of the time are the ideal advertisers for Steinway & Sons. So, he signs the acclaimed artists exclusively to Steinway.
5: They are not bashful. They are not afraid to tell us if something is not 100% with the piano itself. I think we, we are very lucky to have this very good feedback information coming back to us from, from this va- very valuable part of our customer base, the concert artists.
0: Here's Steinway historian Cornelia Polman.
5: People said that if people like that play on them, then this instrument must be of high quality. They asked for recommendations from the aristocracy, such as the Queen of Spain, the Sultan of Turkey, the King of Sweden, and used these recommendations for advertising purposes too. They then built the Steinway Hall. Here in the Steinway Hall is where concerts took place. When you wanted to go to the concert hall, you had to walk through the exhibition rooms. And so, naturally, they did even more advertising for the pianos with that.
0: The New York Times wrote at the time the Steinways can be proud that they own the most magnificent piano business in the whole world. Today, over 95% of the world's finest pianists prefer Steinway pianos for their concerts. At 67, Henry Steinway has fulfilled all his dreams, reputation, wealth, and fame. But then, tragedy strikes. On March 11th, 1865, Henry Jr. dies of consumption at the age of just 35. Then, just days later, Henry's other son, Charles, dies of typhoid fever while visiting his brother in
4: Germany. must have been devastating to Henry Steinway. I mean, to lose not only one son, but two sons. I mean, of course, that was an era where people died more easily. You didn't live as long and children died. But... It was very, very difficult for him, especially, you know, being an immigrant. I mean, his whole family, he brought with him. They were here. And when it's diminished by two, well, he did have the one son back in Germany, but when it's diminished the number that are in New York by two, that was when they wanted to bring C.F. Theodore over to, you know, strengthen the family. It
0: is William's job now to keep the family business running. He writes to his brother Theodore in Germany that they desperately need him in New York. Theodore leaves his successful business in Germany, and three weeks later, he arrives in New York. Brothers William and Theodore form the perfect company management. Theodore invents groundbreaking features for grand piano mechanisms, and William knows how to sell them. Their success starts spiraling.
2: And what a story, and it's so hard to comprehend losing two sons in such a short time. Period of time, especially with a family business, one with real specific knowledge and drive. When we come back, we'll continue with the story of Henry Steinway, who died on this day in history in 1871.
7: Get more at ouramericanstories.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter.
2: to the final installment of this remarkable life story, this quintessential American story. And we heard in the beginning fleeing Germany because of so many restrictions and coming to America to just do well, do what the Steinways do. Make a great product. And now, Greg Hengler with the final part of the story of Henry Steinway.
0: Here again is Henry Steinway's great-great-grandson, Miles Chapin...
4: The skill set, the way that the talents of the sons meshed is really what made the difference. Because on the one hand you had C.F. Theodore Steinway engineering the piano differently, but then on the other hand you had his brother William Steinway who was changing the way you sold pianos, changing the marketing of pianos. And so when you had a company that had a demonstrably finer product, coupled with uh, a CEO, a corporate officer, who knew how to sell that product and was innovative in the ways he was selling that product. Boom, it came together, and it just made a a sum greater than the sum of the parts. Then, in
0: 1863, those parts were attacked by the Manhattan Workers' Union strikes, disrupting Steinway piano production.
4: When the furniture makers' union decided to target the piano industry, Steinway was the biggest, had the most prominent name, and they decided to target Steinway & Sons. I think William Steinway was tremendously surprised by that. Surprised, insulted, nonplussed, and he was shocked. Uh, His workers, say he treated them as if they were his children. I mean, he had a very patronizing, in the best sense of the word, attitude towards his workers. He felt that he was their patron. He was their father figure. Um, At that time, he had a country house out here in Bowery Bay in Queens, and I think he had a revelation one day. He said, wait a minute, New York's over there. I have a house here. Here's all this land. The water, the ocean is right there. I can bring my warm materials in here. I can move my factory here. And I think he deliberately set about doing that, buying the acreage out here, um, moving the company out piece by piece, digging the tunnel underneath the East River. You know, the Steinway Tunnel was the first tunnel under the East River. I took it this morning when I took the subway into Manhattan, the number seven train goes through the William Steinway Tunnel. To get the workers
0: out of the social unrest and union riots in Manhattan, Steinway has his Steinway Village, built in Astoria, Queens.
4: And he built gymnasiums, and libraries, churches, housing for his workers, and a lot of it is still there. Um, you can see on the streets, you know, the streets have been renamed, you know, 30th Avenue, 31st Street, but you can go to some of the housing that was the factory housing, and you can see chiseled on stone on the side of the building. Albert Friedrich Friedrichstrasse, and that was the names that William Steinway had for his original city.
0: Then in 1880, Theodore returns to Germany in order to open and operate a second factory in Hamburg. Since then, they've split the global market into two parts. New York supplies North and South America and Hamburg, the rest of the world. Here again is Andy Horbachevsky, Vice President of Steinway & Sons New York.
5: We're one company, but we do manufacture in two plants here in New York and one in Hamburg, Germany. And there are subtle differences, um, certainly uh, a little in terms of just the, the finish and the high gloss versus the satin look. But there are also, also some um, tonal differences in terms of how the tone uh, uh, tone is perceived. Um, from our perspective as a global company, uh, we like the choice. There are artists that prefer the New York instrument in, in Europe and vice versa. That. In, in, in North America here, some prefer the Hamburg. Uh, to us, I, we, we think that offering a choice is good, and um, we will not change that in the future.
0: When the United States enters into World War II, Steinway and Sons are no longer able to build pianos.
5: Pianos
4: were not deemed strategic materials during World War II in the United States. However, some of the things that go into making the piano were deemed strategic materials. Copper, for instance. Uh, All the copper in the United States was going into the war effort, so the piano makers were not allowed to use copper. The wood that they had at the factory, some of it was used for rifle stocks, things like that. The government at one point was suggesting that Steinway make coffins. I think my grandfather, who had four sons in the war, decided he didn't want to make coffins. They did make glider airplanes for the war effort. They did make about 2,000 pianos for the war effort, small olive drab government issue piano, the ODGI piano, which I love. Came in a little packing crate, had some music, a set of tuning tools, they shipped them all over the world.
0: The 150-year-old company produces about 2,000 handmade nine-foot concert grand pianos a year, compared with the approximately 100 a day by other companies. These magnificent instruments do not come cheap. One is shown in the Steinway Showroom in New York on West 57th Street with a price tag of $103,000. No wonder a prospective buyer is very particular in choosing a specific piano. Each handmade instrument has its own personality. The limited production hinges a lot on the brand's severe selection standards for timber. After all, 85% of the Steinway piano is made from wood. Precious timbers from all over the world are neatly stacked in Steinway's warehouses and there they spend two years in their natural drying process before the next step. Space between them ensures good air circulation and the pliability of wood. After the drying process only 50 to 60 percent pass the rigorous quality checks to become piano parts. As the soundboard is the central part of a piano the design and the selection of the materials for it must be meticulous. The artisans select the finest North American spruce. Spruce has the desired regular grain to ensure a smooth resonance. Only five to 10% of the timber from one tree can be used for the handmade soundboard by the experienced artisans. Australian concert pianist Piers Lane has specially flown to Hamburg to choose three concert grands for his hometown, Sydney
8: which works as well. There's a, a singing sound with quality. Now, it'd be interesting to compare that with the one down the end, say.
0: Piers is attended to by Steinway & Sons sales consultant Garrett Glaner, who jots down notes while following Piers around a brightly lit showroom filled with Steinway grand pianos.
8: But we start with the same thing now. don't feel it's got the same fineness of quality as the other one in the tone but let's try some Mozart. I don't feel it's got the same depth of character as the other one. The other one's got more core to the sound. I want to compare that now with the first one.
0: After a sound test marathon of six and a half hours, the pianist makes his selections.
8: It's interesting because it makes me play it in a slightly different way. This piano. How do you feel, Gareth? The middle one is a kind of a mixed twin. Oh, it's true. But yeah. uh, if I should
3: use the term noblesse, yes, I would find it most in this one because this one. there's yeah.
8: some extra agree. glimpse on yeah. on each note, and I think yeah. it has a beautiful cantabile. I like the balance of the piano. Exactly. It feels, you know, even across the whole range. But at the same time, it has the classical um, transparency as well in the texture.
4: Periodically, there has been in the history of the piano. Uh, The death bell has been summoned or been struck. You know what happened in the 1920s when player pianos started and when radio came on, people said, oh, well, nobody will listen to pianos anymore. After World War II, with hi-fi and television, people said, oh, people won't have pianos anymore. In the 50s, with electric pianos and Hammond organs, oh, no, people will never need pianos anymore. Didn't happen then. Hasn't happened now. You know, And still people are, are, are improving, tinkering, as you say, a little bit with the piano, just trying to find small improvements to it. But there's nothing that can replace it. Nothing can replace the sound of a grand piano. Well played.
0: After 75 years, In 1871, an unusual life journey comes to an end. A journey that took the orphan from the Hartz Mountains in Germany to the highest highs of music in America. Courage, perseverance, and family were his strengths. After 150-plus years of turmoil, feuds, depressions, wars, competition from the Far East, nothing has silenced the Steinway Sound even if what Steinway is now selling is its past rather than any technical innovation. A New York Times reporter referred to the Steinway factory as a resilient treasure in a city that wonders whether it has lost its soul. With his Steinway and son's piano, Henry Steinway has made himself immortal. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories.
2: And great job, as always, Greg. And it's startling to hear that 95% of all concert pianists still use Steinway. They innovated, well, in every respect, from how to make a piano to how to sell a piano. All of it from one man, Henry Steinway, who died on this day in history in 1871. His story, here on Our American Stories.
1: It's nine o'clock on a Saturday. Regular crowd shuffles
2: in. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, including sports. And my favorite sport, hands down, is basketball. Something I've always played all my life. And what I've loved about it is just, well, wherever you are, you can walk onto a court, pick up a game, and all you need is a ball, shorts, and a t-shirt, and you're running. And whether you know who basketball star Pistol Pete Maravich is or not, or maybe you're not even a fan of basketball, our next story is one you're not going to want to miss. On this day in history, Maravich set an NCAA Division I record with 69 points in the 106-104 loss to Alabama. And all of our This Day in Histories, by the way, are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. Go to hillsdale.edu to sign up for their free and terrific online courses. And let's begin with a simple question. Who's Pete Maravich? Excitement, enthusiasm,
3: greatness. That was Pete Maravich. He was unstoppable. It was as if you had melted down all 12 Harlem trotters and then filled up this skinny 6'6 white frame
2: with everything they had. Everything just stopped. It was like, wait a second, did he just do what I
9: think he did? You were never quite sure what he was going to do with the ball in the open court because he had a thousand moves to either shoot it or pass
7: it.
5: Give him that much room and he'll burn
7: you. He faked with his right hand like he was going to the player on his left. And he just whiffed it and then he hit it, tipped it with his left hand to the player on his right. He went in for a layup and the officials called traveling. And Pete went crazy. He went to the official and said, you can't call that, you've never seen that move before. Nobody handled the ball better than pistol. But he wasn't just satisfied with that. He had to put a little show on for the fans. I asked him once if he'd
9: ever
4: played a perfect game. He said, no, but I'm going to. He says, some night I'm going to
3: take 40 shots and I'm going to make them all. He was an entertainer at heart. And his ability to pass the ball and dribble the ball and do outlandish things on the court, which sometimes even overruled the game, that was Pete Maravich.
2: And Pete Maravich was born on June 22, 1947, in a small steel town in Western Pennsylvania. His father, Press Maravich, was a local basketball hero himself who logged a short career as a pro. Press's skills became the foundation of his son's greatness.
9: When I was seven years old, my dad sat me down and he said, Pete, if you'll listen to me, you might be able to get a scholarship in basketball because we can't pay your way. And maybe you not only get a scholarship, but maybe you'll go to the pro level and you'll play on a team that wins a world championship. And you'll make a million dollars playing basketball. And they'll give you a big diamond ring and i will have your name on it and say world champions. And to a seven year old, my eyes lit up. And I said, dad, that's what I want. He said, if you let me teach you, you just commit, you dedicate your life to basketball and that's all you have to do. And you'll live happily the rest of your lives. And that's what I did. I became a human basketball. I was a basketball android.
2: And that he was. There's always those great clips of seeing Pistol Pete walking down a street, twicking that that basketball on his finger, and you knew he slept with the ball. He was the ball. Pete's father knew exactly how to pull his son's heartstrings. Let's take a listen.
9: Pete would come on the court in the backyard and say, let me shoot, give me the ball. And Press would say, no, go back in the house, you're too small. And Press said on one occasion he'd left the ball on the court and went back in the house and looked back through the kitchen window and he saw that Pete had slipped onto the court, picked up the ball and started shooting. And Press says, I knew at that moment I had him. It was like his dad was
7: dangling something out in front of him and would intrigue him and Pete would get interested in it. And then his dad would take another step and then another step until he was
3: hooked and he was obsessed by the game of basketball. When he was 12 years old, he opened the window to his room, jumped out of the window and spent the night in the woods cuddling the basketball. When press was at the wheel of the car, Pete would sit in the back seat By the window, put the window down, and as press drove slowly, Pete would dribble the ball. Now, I mean, that's an eerie connection with basketball.
2: You bet. And according to NBA.com, when Pete was only 11, get this, he made 500 consecutive free throws one evening after school. Try that. Just give it a shot. See how long it takes you to make 500 straight. Like, mm, forever. And he stopped only when it became too dark to see the rim that was illuminated only by his father's flashlight. In 1956, the Maravich family moved to South Carolina, where Press would coach Clemson's basketball team. While Press built a reputation in the ACC, Pete was building one of his own, playing on the high school varsity team as a 12-year-old. In
3: 1959, he threw a pass between his legs, and the crowd went berserk. It was a small crowd, but they went nuts. And at that time, something clicked in him, very much like any entertainer.
7: When practice was over at high school, he would stay another hour or two, just ball handling. And shooting hook shots from half court, stuff like that. He was about five foot, weighed about 80 pounds when he was in the eighth grade. He used to sit out there from 20 to 25 feet, shoot from the hip. That's when he got that pistol name. Pete was always the last one to leave the court.
9: And when Press would be there to pick him up, he would say, well, come on, Pete. And Pete would always put him off. Uh, Dad, I've got a little bit more to work on. You know, I've got something else I need to do. And Press would look at me and he'd
2: say, how about that kid? When I knew him in high school, he was this jittery, jerky kind of a guy, the kind of guy that, uh, you know, probably some psychologist today would have him on Ritalin. You know, he, he was probably just too jerky. He couldn't concentrate. He couldn't sit still. Trying to be friendly to Pete was kind of hard because he would, he would start looking down
9: and
5: moping around. He wouldn't really care, and particularly if there were girls involved.
2: <laughs> and after high school, Press Maravich presented he and his son as a package deal to the college would put, that would put forth the best officer, offer. Press chose LSU fulfilling his dream of coaching his son.
8: I can remember the first day I saw Press Maravich at a press conference at LSU. The first
7: one he had as a coach. And before he got halfway through, he said, boy, there's going to be a guy next year. at LSU is going to be the greatest basketball player in the world. My son, Pete.
2: Now, as you can imagine, if you know anything about the SEC, selling basketball in a place like LSU, well, that's just funny. I mean, football in Death Valley in that stadium That's religion itself, practically, as close as one can get. When we come back, how press and Pete turn LSU into a basketball powerhouse and put LSU on the map for hoops, not football. More on this day in history, celebrating the life of Pistol Pete Maravich. You won't believe the rest of this story. return to our American stories and the story of Pistol Pete Maravich, who on this day in history scored 69 points in a single game back in 1970. And as one of the commentators had said early on in last segment, Pistol Pete Maravich was all of the Harlem Globetrotters wrapped into one human being, and it's true. Well, back to the story. It was an almost impossible feat back then, as I had indicated, to sell basketball in a place like Louisiana and LSU. But with Pete, anything was possible.
1: It wasn't until Pete showed up on campus and started playing that, I mean, it was like the word spread
3: like wildfire that here was a bona fide superstar.
1: And it'd be five, 6,000 people would show up for the freshman game just to see him. And then they'd have the Vostia game, and it would be like six, 700.
2: <laughs> and that was Jim Carville, by the way. You know him from his political commentary. He was also an LSU alum. After averaging 44 points on a freshman team that lost just once, and again, I said 44 points, that was his average day, Pete joined his father on the varsity team in 1967, where he dominated the league and filled stadiums with enamored fans. But receiving his father's approval was what Pistol Pete craved most of all.
5: Those of us that were close to press could tell how proud he was of Pete. And behind Pete's back, he would just say glorious things about Pete. He would never tell Pete that he was that great. Part of what Pete was searching for was his father's approval, and I don't think he got it very often.
2: And it's interesting, withholding some of that approval and love made him strive more. And I'm not saying that's what we should do as parents all the time, but sometimes perhaps we shower our kids with a little too much praise. And finding that right balance, I think that's what we all struggle with. While Pete and his father interacted on the basketball court, his mother, Helen, well, she struggled with the crowds and rarely went out in public.
7: The sad thing about that was when she was in public, she was just absolutely marvelous. A wonderful lady, but she just, I think, crawled with intercept.
2: His uh, mother was an alcoholic. I don't think uh, anybody identified that problem at the time. Nobody talked about that problem at the time. But uh, you could put things together. You could. And Pete himself, well, he struggled with alcohol as well. He
5: would wake up in the morning to go to class and go out there and see how did he get his car in this spot. You could almost sense and feel him hitting the front bumper and then backing up to the back bumper and front bumper and back bumper until he gets in.
9: He drank a lot when he was in college with the reports we were getting, a couple of wrecks, and, of course, you know, his daddy wasn't going to kick him off the team, but he might bat him around a little bit.
2: <laughs> yeah, I don't think people laugh about that quite as much, but that was, those were the days. That's what happened, and that was pretty routine. However hard Pistol Pete played off the court, he never let up once the whistle blew, averaging 44 points in his sophomore and junior years. But scoring was only part of Pistol Pete's arsenal.
7: We felt like his ball handling and his assist abilities overshadowed his scoring abilities. And that sounds crazy when a guy averages 40-some points a game. So we made the decision that we were going to play him straight up and guard the heck out of the rest of the people. Coach Rupp didn't think that Pete could beat us all by himself, and so we would play him one-on-one. The six games that we played against each other uh, in college, I think Pete averaged over 50 points a game. But we won all six games, so Coach Rupp was right.
2: Coach Rupp, by the way, of the powerhouse Kentucky squads. And imagine that, 50 points a game against one of the great college basketball teams of all time. In late January of 1970 against Ole Miss, and we broadcast from Oxford, Mississippi, home of Ole Miss, it's just about an hour south of Memphis, The Pistol passed Oscar Robertson's NCAA scoring record. That senior year, he also broke his own season record by averaging 44.5 points a game. He finished his college career with an NCAA record 3,667 points in only three seasons because, again, back then, NCAA rules at the time prohibited first-year students from playing at the varsity level. To this day, he still holds 11 NCAA records, Including the all time leading NCAA scorer with career averages of 44.2 points per game over a three year career. That's just crazy. All of his accomplishments were achieved before the three point line shot and the shot clock were introduced to the NCAA basketball system, and despite being unable to play varsity again as a freshman under NCAA rule. So just imagine what he could have accomplished. Let's take a listen.
7: what i do every year my first notes column of the year is is i just remind people of what pete maravich did that he averaged 44 points a game for three seasons and i don't think people understand what that number is and and that's a number that will never be approached ever again in college basketball
5: i think without a doubt he was the greatest offensive player ever to play the game if you want to break his record that was with no three-point shot all you have to do is score 15 three-pointers every game you play, your entire college career, and you'll break Pistols' record. No one's ever going to do it.
2: As college's all-time scoring champion, though, Maravich would face Maravich would face a new challenge, and a new challenge in the National Basketball Association.
3: We are most happy to announce that Pete Maravich will play professional basketball for the Atlanta Hawks. At the
2: as the third pick in the 1970 NBA draft, the Atlanta Hawks made NBA history by presenting the richest contract ever offered to a college player at five years for $1.9 million. But not everyone was happy with that deal. Here's
8: a
3: white kid who hasn't played a day as a pro making more than triple the salary of anyone else on that team and it caused some dissent.
2: You think? Yeah, the vets probably weren't too happy. Despite his national following and a 24-point average, Maravich wasn't adding wins. The Hawks never won a playoff round in his four seasons there. The Hawks' GM at the time was Pat Williams, and he was approached by head coach Cotton Fitzsimmons about Maravich's game, his drinking, and his temperament. Here's Pat.
3: Cotton came to me at that point and said, you know we got to start thinking about making a a move here. Well, I started doing that very quietly. And, uh, you know, it was very, very interesting. There was no
2: interest. There was no interest. Maverich was eventually picked up by the expansion team, the New Orleans Jazz. Pete was finally going home. Here again is Pat Williams.
3: Pete then says, "Um, what did you get for me? And I told him, trying not to be too elated, but I reeled off the pics we were going to get, laid the whole package. And there was a little pause, and Pete said, is that all?
2: <laughs> is that all? And then in 1974, Helen Maravich was pronounced dead from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. She was 49. Here's Pete's friend, Calvin Murphy.
9: I saw a difference after his mother passed away. I saw a difference in pistol. I saw a A serene, almost kind of a lost individual. It was all the pressure that was placed upon him that wanted to chase him away from the game. He didn't know if it was worth it anymore.
2: And Calvin Murphy himself was a heck of a ball player for the Houston Rockets. Maravich averaged 21 points and 16 assists in his first season with the Jazz. It was the first season he made All-Pro. He averaged 33 points in 1977, and the pistol could still deliver showtime performances. Both guns were blazing on February 25th, 1977 against the New York Knicks. He just went off that night. It was the most amazing thing that I'll ever remember seeing as a player. Pistol
9: fire. Oh, come on, come on. 68 from Maravich.
2: 68 from Maravich. That game is bettered by six other players only in NBA history. Battling a bad name, Maravich was waived and picked up by the Boston Celtics, where he finished his career in 1980. That final year would be the rookie season for his fellow Celtic teammate, Larry Bird. Unfortunately for Maravich, his last year would be the first year the three-point line was instituted, a line from which he shot 66.7%. Maravich was 33, and the next couple of years, without his passion, the fame, and his identity, it would be sheer torture.
3: According to Pete, these were the darkest two years of his life. He basically holed up in the house. He was incredibly depressed. And he spoke about it as if he was a drug addict going through withdrawals. And the withdrawal was the attention and the love that he had for basketball.
2: But Pete Maravich was about to be released from his demons. How he gained his freedom surprised all who knew him. In 1982, the depressed and lost son of a basketball father... Found someone else to believe in.
3: Pete Marovich believes that God spoke to him audibly. And he said that from that day on for the rest of his life.
9: And I was getting ready to go off my bed, and God spoke to me. He spoke to me audibly, and he said, Be strong and lift thine own heart. It reverberated through my room. I'll never forget it as long as I live, just like I'm speaking in this microphone. He was not in my spirit, he was outside. He had not come in yet.
2: And that's the voice of Pistol Pete Marovich. And he'd found christ and when we come back the rest of this remarkable story pistol pete set the ncaa d1 record in 1970 scoring 69 points in a single game and all of our this day in histories are brought to us by the great folks at hillsdale college go to hillsdale.edu to learn more and to sign up for their free and terrific online courses more on the life story of pistol pete maravich after these messages This is our American stories the life of pistol Pete Maravich celebrated here on our American stories I wanted to go back to that last clip there was more to it we had to cut out because we were heading towards a break but you know as we had said marriage was about to be released from his demons and he gained his freedom well from a surprise place no one expected it let's return to that clip and take a listen
3: Pete Maravich believes that God spoke to him audibly and he said that from that day on for the rest of his life.
9: Now I was getting ready to go off my bed and God spoke to me, he spoke to me audibly and he said, be strong and lift thine own heart. It reverberated through my room. I'll never forget it as long as I live, just like I'm speaking in this microphone. He was not in my spirit. He was outside. He had not come in yet. God spoke to us personally and a lot of people can't
7: understand that. I don't understand it. But he spoke to us audibly. I'm saying, come on, Pete. And he says, I promise you, Bob, I was woken by a sound. It was the Lord speaking to me. And at that time, he dedicated his life to the Lord. He found that, and he was more devoted to that than anything I've ever seen, basketball included.
1: Once he became a Christian, he would read his Bible hours at a time, every day.
2: He would go up and talk with anybody then, where before he thought everybody was coming to talk to him all the time. And he was always trying to convert somebody to Christianity. Pete helped guide his own father to Jesus, who died of cancer in 1987. Here is Pete reflecting on his father just after he died.
9: My dad was really my hero. I mean, he influenced me so greatly in my life, and uh, he influenced me until the day he died. Uh, We were very, very, very close, and... uh, I think that's good. I think a father and son should be that close. I think uh, the heroes today should be the fathers. They should not be some uh, athlete. You can admire athletes, you can admire rock stars, you can admire people, but it should be the fathers that are the heroes of kids today. I think most kids kids like to be like their fathers.
2: And then nine, nine months later, Pete himself would follow his father. On January 5th, 1988, Pete was scheduled to be interviewed with Dr. James Dobson on his Christian radio program. Focus on the family. While playing pickup basketball at the church's gym in Pasadena, California, something terrible happened. Here's Dr. Dobson and his colleagues, who were witnesses that day.
1: I knew that he had really come through a difficult time in his life, and there had been a dramatic change in his life when he met Jesus Christ. And uh, I really wanted to hear him tell that story, but I had not met him until that uh, morning at 7 o'clock uh, when we uh, met at the gym to play basketball. I think he was going about half speed. But there was a move or two that he made that
5: took our breath away. We played uh, about three games, and, uh, and at that time, uh, some of the guys went to get a drink of water. Some went outside to get some fresh air, and before I knew it, it was just Dr. Dobson. and. Pete on the court and I was underneath the basket rebounding for Pete as the two of them talked. He said, you know, I've loved being here today. He said,
1: I, I've really got to get back into basketball, even if it's pickup stuff like this. And I said, uh, how do you feel today? And I promise you his last words to me were, I feel great. I just feel great. And I turned to walk away and I, I don't know why, but I looked back at him for some reason just in time to see him fall and he fell hard he didn't break his fall i mean his face hit the boards
5: i walked over very carefully along with dr dobson thinking that pete was going to jump in our faces but as soon as we got close we could see his eyes rolling back and the color in his face starting to change
1: and then i saw that he was in a seizure and I got down over him, and uh, I held his tongue and kept his air passage open for about 20 seconds. And then he just he just writhed once like that. His body moved once, and he was gone. The man died in my arms.
2: Maravich was 40. He left behind his wife Jackie and their two sons Joshua and Jason. In 1996, Maravich was named one of the 50 greatest players in NBA history. While Joshua and and Jason were there representing their father, Magic Johnson approached Maravich's two sons and confessed that he borrowed the term Showtime from Maravich and said that, quote, he was the real Showtime. Here's NBA Hall of Famer Elvin Hayes, followed by Pistol's brother, Ronnie. Most artists, when they are living people don't recognize them and recognize their great talent until after they're gone and i think this is what really happened to beat maravich
7: it seems like to me everybody wants to dwell on the sad times or depressed time he had a good life he had a great life he did what he wanted he played basketball that was his love and he ended up with his second love his wife and then he had his kids and then he found jesus i think he died a happy person if he was alive today, he would probably be walking down Bourbon Street handing out leaflets for Jesus. If he got one person out of a thousand, he'd be happy.
2: Yep, that sounds like pistol. He was, a great, he was like a great singer with a style all his own, a pacing that was different, a flair for the unusual, said Los Angeles Lakers legendary announcer Chick Hearn. NBA great Paul Westphal said this. He was an artist. His canvas was the court and his brush was the basketball. And NBA legend Elgin Baylor declared, quote, Jerry West was the best I ever played with, and Pete is the best I've ever seen. Here's another NBA legend, Bill Walton, reflecting on the pistol and the no three-point line while he was in college. Amazing about Pete, 44
7: points per game, career for three straight years in an era with no three-point line. Dale Brown, coached at LSU after Press and Pete were there. Dale Brown went back and charted all the games with the with the running score. You know, Maravich free throw, Maravich 22-foot jumper, Maravich layup. And he calculated that with the current college three-point rule at 19-9, Pete Maravich would have averaged 13 three-point makes per game, which would have given him a career average of 57 points per game under today's rules. That guy is unbelievable. We love him. We missed him terribly. What a great friend. What a great human
0: being.
2: The late Pete Maravich. In his 2005 memoir Chronicles Volume 1 Bob Dylan wrote this about Pete Maravich. Quote, and imagine this, Bob Dylan writing about Pistol Pete. I started and completed the song Dignity the same day I'd heard sad news about Pistol Pete. I'd seen him play in New Orleans once. He was something to see. Mop of brown hair, floppy socks. The holy terror of the basketball world. High-flying, magician of the court. The night I saw him, he dribbled the ball with his head. Scored a behind-the-back, no-look basket. Dribbled the length of the court. Threw the ball up off the glass and caught his own pass. He was fantastic. Scored something like 38 points. He could have played blind. Pistol Pete hadn't played professionally for a while. And he was thought of as forgotten. I hadn't forgotten about him, though. Some people seemed to fade away. But then, when they are truly gone, it's like they didn't fade away at all. And we're going to leave you with that song by Bob Dylan, because on this day in 1970, Maravich set an NCAA D1 record with 69 points in a 106-104 loss on the road to Alabama. And again, all of our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, the best place to learn all the things that matter in life all the things that are beautiful in life. Go to hillsdale.edu. Go to hillsdale.edu to learn more. That's hillsdale.edu. Pete Maravich's story, the story of a record-breaking night here on Our American Stories.
1: Someone showed me a picture and I just left. Dignity never been photographed. Dreams. So many roads, so much at stake Too many dead ends, I'm at the edge of the lane Sometimes I wonder what it's gonna take to find dignity
2: continue with Our American Stories, and we continue with stories we've been telling for quite some time now with author Tim Harford, and his book is 50 Inventions That Shape the Modern Economy, and we've been covering a whole bunch of them over several installments, and you can go to Our American Network to catch a bunch of them, and ultimately we're going to have about a dozen of them up on the air, and today we're talking about a particular company that everyone knows now, but we're talking about an innovation within that company, and we're talking about the iPhone.
6: The iPhone has a very interesting lesson for us, I think. I mean, I don't need to tell you how it changed the economy, and and, and of course all the clones that came along, Google's um, Android phones as well. Um, I don't need to tell you how they changed the economy, but I think where they came from is a very interesting lesson. So th- this argument is made by an economist called Mariana Mazzucato and she says look what is what is in an iPhone you've got a touchscreen you've got the solid state hard drive you've you've got the um the computer chips you've got algorithms particularly algorithms that convert digital to analog and analog to digital you've got GPS you you've got access to the internet you've got the cell phone structure you've got all of that going on okay These are the building blocks that Steve Jobs put together to make this amazing invention. So who invented the building blocks? And when you look at the history of it, very often they came from governments, um, very often the American government, very often the American military, although not always. For example, the touchscreen is a British government invention. It was was invented uh, at the Royal Radar Establishment. Um, So you look at all these different inventions, and, and they all have these these government or military origins, which is very striking um, because a lot of people, myself included, like to sing the praises of you know, private sector innovation, the power of the entrepreneur, the, the creativity of the free market. I'm, I'm all for that. I, I believe in that. But we also have to look at the facts. And in this particular fact, a lot of these building blocks came from governments. They were put together by a brilliant entrepreneur, Steve Jobs, but he would not have had the raw material to work with. He would just have been making a clever toy if he hadn't had these different uh, inventions. Even Siri was designed originally for fighter pilots and eventually became repurposed for smartphones. So it's a lesson about how sometimes the, um, the origins of these amazing inventions that shape the world around us. They're not always the origins we expect. They weren't always produced by the people who get most of the credit.
2: You know, Tim, speaking of things that have their origins in the military, talk about radar.
6: Well, yes, radar. Originally, the idea was, a couple of British scientists during the Second World War, we're going to create a death ray. We're going to use electromagnetic radiation to create this beam that will heat eight pints of liquid, i.e. blood, um, above whatever, 105 degrees Fahrenheit, enough to make a pilot of a, of a plane pass out, and we're going to sort of knock planes out of, the, out of the sky using our death ray. And the two scientists discussing this idea very quickly realized there's no way, we, we don't have the power, we don't have the range, it can't be done. But we could use electromagnetic waves to, um, to bounce off planes, and we could interrogate The signals that come back. And we could use that to track incoming planes. And this is a hugely important development uh, in the Second World War, because it meant for for Britain, as these German bombers came over high and fast, attacking British uh, cities, we could see them coming. And we could scramble a response, and we could actually intercept them. So, I mean, it changed the course of the Second World War. And then various... Developments uh, that made radars uh, more powerful, more compact. You could put them in submarines, you could put them in aeroplanes, you could use them all over the battlefield. Um, A really, real um, war winning effort. But on top of that, of course, once you've got that military technology, you've got a technology that makes civilian airspace a lot safer. And initially, those early civilian flights. It was just a case of, well, you, you plot your course on the map and you fly from one airport to another and keep, keep away from clouds and hopefully you won't crash into another plane. And, and there was a tragic crash over the Grand Canyon, two, two planes both trying to give their passengers a view over the Grand Canyon. They hit each other, uh, terrible loss of life. And at that point, people started saying, you know what, we've got this technology, we could use it to track where all the planes are to run a kind of air, air traffic control system and to keep everyone safe. And ever since then, uh, air travel has been getting safer and safer and safer, famously safe, no matter how dangerous it may seem when, you, when you're up there in one of those uh, those thin tubes. And it is partly because of radar.
2: Indeed. And if I could, Tim, TV dinners has to be the way we close. Uh, okay. uh, inauspicious, but it's here and it's funny.
6: It is funny. It was originally going to be the washing machine. You might be thinking, well, what's the connection between the TV dinner and the washing machine? Well, lots of people said, you have to do the washing machine because the the washing machine liberated housewives. Women who could be going out to work for money, getting economic independence, uh, getting experience at the workplace, fully contributing to society. And there they are, they're stuck at home doing the laundry. And I, I wanted to write that story. I thought it was a great story. But when I looked at the, the actual data, and I looked at the research that people had done, I found washing machines did not save women any time. What happened was, instead of doing you know one wash a month, you'd do one wash a day. And um, we, we all looked a lot cleaner and smelt a lot cleaner, but it didn't actually save the housewives who unfortunately the ones having to take responsibility for this didn't save them any time Um, the tv dinner on the other hand did and by tv dinner i mean not just the thing in an aluminium tray that you would warm up and sit there with your you know with it in your lap but all of the other technologies by which food was industrialized so the idea that rather than plucking your own chicken the chicken's pre-plucked and indeed maybe it's it's pre-seasoned and pre-stuffed and actually if you go to a deli uh, maybe it's also pre-cooked the, the whole thing's ready to eat so um uh crisps uh sorry you guys, we call them crisps you guys call them <laughs> potato chips yeah you think about potato chips um to prepare fresh potato chips to finely slice all the potatoes and to heat up the hot oil and and all the mess and the risk that, that involves and to fry them. Huge, huge amount of time and effort. But you can buy potato chips in a bag. Uh, Take seconds. You can eat them anywhere. Um, uh, pre-chopped salads. You don't need to chop your own salad. You don't need to wash your own lettuce. The salad's there in a bag. All of these different technologies, frozen meals, takeaway pizza, the whole lot. All of this save women an enormous amount of time. We, the, we couldn't... The, we had at the pre before we had this technology women had to prepare it always was the women had to prepare every meal tidy up after every meal they were literally spending hours every day putting food on the table literally putting food on the table and when the tv dinner and all these other technologies came along that suddenly liberated women to go out into the workforce to earn a living to gain their independence if that's what they wanted to do in a way that People say the washing machine did, but I'm afraid it never did.
2: And I'll close with this. Uh, The industrialization of food freed women from hours of domestic chores, removing a large obstacle to their adopting serious professional careers. But by making empty calories ever more convenient, it also freed our waistlines to expand. Six decades after the launch of the TV dinner, the challenge now, as with so many inventions, is to enjoy the benefit without also suffering the cost. Talk about that, Tim.
6: So many of these inventions have created things that we should be very grateful for, enormously grateful for. But many of them do have side effects, unintended consequences, disadvantages. And so there's always a temptation to say, oh, well, you know, we should never have invented that. We should never have that. If only we could turn the clock back. But we can never turn the clock back. We, We can't the invention genie back in the bottle. So with all of these inventions, we're always asking ourselves, we should be asking ourselves, what can we do to enjoy, as I wrote in that passage, what can we do to enjoy the benefits um, without the costs? And sometimes that's a matter for for government rules. Sometimes that's a matter for a community to get together and, and agree, well, this is this is how we drive in this town. This is how we behave. And sometimes it's a matter for individuals. What am I going to do to make sure I don't waste too much time on my smartphone? What am I going to do to make sure I'm not tempted to snack and I, I don't, don't become obese and harm my health and my self-esteem? Um, but we always need to be thinking about it. Um, technologies never just solve problems. They always create some problems as well. And so there's, there's always an opportunity for us to do better.
2: And we've been listening to Tim Harford, author of 50 Inventions That Shaped the Modern Economy. And go to Amazon.com and pick this terrific book up. It's just chock full of stories, and they're short stories. You can read one and wait a few days, read another. They're not interconnected. They're not interrelated. But you get the story of modern life and the beginning of modern culture and the industrial world. And my goodness, all of these inventions indeed ones you'd never really think about. My goodness, the the TV dinner I just would have never thought about as including in the list, and I couldn't stop reading the chapter. Again, Tim Harford, 50 Inventions That Shape the Modern Economy. And by the way, if there's a book out there that you think we should be covering that has a great story, and it doesn't have to be a new book, a book you've never read before is a new book, send your suggestions to ouramericannetwork.org, and we'll get on it. And we love talking to authors who can tell stories about stuff that we either didn't know or thought we knew. Tim Harford's stories: 50 inventions that shaped the modern economy. Here, on our American stories.